Section 11 of Now It Can Be Told by Philip Gibbs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 4, Chapters 6 to 13. Chapter 6. There was more than half a gale blowing on the eve of the new year, and the wind came howling with a savage violence across the rain-swept fields, so that the first days of a fateful year had a stormy birth, and there was no peace on earth. Louder than the wind was the greeting of the guns to another year of war. I heard the New Year's chorus when I went to see the last of the year across the battlefields. Our guns did not let it die in silence. It went into the tomb of the past, with all its tragic memories, to thunderous salvos, carrying death with them. The heavies were indulging in a special strafe this New Year's Eve. As I went down a road near the lines by Luce, I saw from concealed positions the flash of gun upon gun. The air was swept by an incessant rush of shells, and the roar of all this artillery stupefied one's sense of sound. All about me in the village of Ancan, through which I walked, there was no other sound, no noise of human life. There were no New Year's Eve rejoicings among those rows of miners' cottages on the edge of the battlefield. Half those little red brick houses were blown to pieces, and when here and there through a cracked window-pane I saw a woman's white face peering out upon me as I passed, I felt as though I had seen a ghost-face in some black pit of hell. For it was hellish, this place, wrecked by high explosives, and always under the fire of German guns. That any human being should be there passed all belief. From a shell-hole in a high wall, I looked across the field of battle, where many of our best had died. The tower bridge of Luce stood grim and gaunt above the sterile fields. Through the rain and the mist loomed the long black ridge of Notre-Dame-de-Lorette, where many poor bodies lay in the rotting leaves. The ruins of Hen and Huluk were jagged against the skyline, and here, on New Year's Eve, I saw no sign of life and heard no sound of it but stared at the broad desolation and listened to the enormous clangor of great guns. Coming back that day through Bethune, I met some very human life. It was a big party of blue jackets from the Grand Fleet who had come to see what Tommy was doing in the war. They went into the trenches and saw a good deal, because the Germans made a bombing raid in that sector, and the naval men did their little bit by the side of the lads in khaki. Who liked this visit. They discovered the bomb store and opened such a Brock's benefit that the enemy must have been shocked with surprise. One young Marine was bomb-slinging for four hours and grinned at the prodigious memory as though he had the time of his life. Another confessed to me that he preferred rifle grenades, which he fired off all night until the dawn. There was no sleep in the dugouts, and every hour was a long thrill. I don't mind saying, said a petty officer, who had fought in several naval actions during the war, and is a man of mark, that I had a fair fright when I was doing duty on the fire-step. I suppose I've got to look through a periscope, I said. Not you, said the sergeant. At night you put your head over the parapet. So over the parapet I put my head, and presently I saw something moving between the lines. My rifle began to shake. Germans! moving, sure enough, over the open ground. 
I fixed bayonet and prepared for an attack. But I'm blessed if it wasn't a swarm of rats. The soldiers were glad to show Jack the way about the trenches, and some of them played up a little audaciously, as, for instance, when a young fellow sat on the top of the parapet at dawn. "'Come up and have a look, Jack,' he said to one of the blue jackets. "'Not in these trousers, old mate,' said the young man. "'All as cool as cucumbers,' said a petty officer, "'and take the discomforts of trench life as cheerily as any men could. "'It's marvellous. Good luck to them in the new year.' Behind the lines there was a banqueting by men who were mostly doomed to die, and I joined a crowd of them in a hall at Lillier on that New Year's Day. They were the heroes of Luce, or some of them, Camerons and Seaforths, Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, Gordons and King's Own Scottish Borders, who, with the London men, were the first on Hill 70 and away to the Sit St. Auguste. They left many comrades there and their battalions have been filled up with new drafts, of the same type as themselves, and of the same grit. But that day no ghost of grief, no dark shadow of gloom, was upon any of the faces upon which I looked round a festive board in a long French hall, to which their wounded came in those days of the September battle. There were young men there, from the Scottish universities, and from Highland farms, sitting shoulder to shoulder in a jolly comradeship, which burst into song between every mouthful of the feast. On the platform above the banqueting board, a piper was playing when I came in, and this hall in France was filled with the wild strains of it. "'And they're grand, the pipes,' said one of the Cameroons. "'When I'd been so tired on the march I could a lead, doon indeed. The touch o' the pipes was fair lifted me up again.' A piper made way for a kilty at the piano, and for Highlanders, who sang old songs full of melancholy, which seemed to make the hearts of his comrades grow glad, as when they helped him with the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond. But the roof nearly fell off the hall to the march of the Cameron men, and the walls were greatly strained when the regimental marching song broke at every verse into wild highland shouts and the war cry, which was heard at loose, of Camerons forward, forward Camerons! "'An Englishman is good,' said one of the Camerons, leaning over the table to me, "'and an Irishman is good, but a Scot is best of all.' Then he struck the palm of one hand with the fist of another. "'But the London men,' he said, with a fine, joyous laugh at some good memory, "'are as good as any fighting men in France. "'My word, ye should have seen em on September 25th, "'and the London Irish were just lions.' Out in the rain-slash-street I met the colonel of a battalion of Argyles and Sutherlands, with several of his officers, a tall, thin officer with a long stride, who was killed when another year had passed. He beckoned me and said, I'm going the rounds of the billets to wish the men good luck in the new year. It's a strain on the Constitution, as I have to drink their health each time. He bore the strain gallantly and there was something noble and chivalrous in the way he spoke to all his men, gathered together in various rooms, in old Flemish houses, round plum-pudding from home or feasts provided by the army cooks. To each group of men he made the same kind of speech, thanking them from his heart for all their courage. "'You were thanked by three generals,' he said, after your attack at Luce, "'and you upheld the old reputation of the regiment. I'm proud of you.' 
and afterward in november when you had the devil of a time in the trenches you stuck it splendidly and came out with high spirits i wish you all a happy new year and whatever the future may bring i know i can count on you in every billet there were three cheers for the colonel and another three for the staff captain and though the colonel protested that he was afraid of spending a night in the guard-room there were shouts of laughter at this he drank his sip of neat whiskey according to the custom of the day toodaloo old bird said a kilted cockney halfway up a ladder on which he swayed perilously being very drunk but the colonel did not hear this familiar way of address in many billets and in many halls the feast of new year's day was kept in good comradeship by men who had faced death together and who in the year that was coming fought in many battles and fell on many fields chapter seven the canadians who were in the ypres salient in january nineteen sixteen and for a long time afterward had a grim way of fighting the enemy never knew what they might do next when they were most quiet they were most dangerous they used cunning as well as courage and went out on red indian adventures over no man's land for fierce and scientific slaughter i remember one of their early raids in the salient when a big party of them all volunteers went out one night with intent to get through the barbed wire outside a strong german position to do a lot of killing there they had trained for the job and thought out every detail of this hunting expedition they blacked their faces so that they would not show white in the enemy's flares they fastened flash lamps to their bayonets so they might see their victims they wore rubber gloves to save their hands from being torn on the barbs of the wire stealthily they crawled over no man's land crouching in shell holes every time a rocket rose and made a glimmer of light they took their time at the wire muffling the snap of it by bits of cloth reliefs crawled up with more gloves and even with tins of hot cocoa then through the gap into the german trenches and there were screams of german soldiers terror shaken by the flash of light in their eyes and black faces above them and bayonets already red with blood it was butcher's work quick and skilful like a red indian scalping thirty germans were killed before the canadians went back with only two casualties the germans were horrified by this sudden slaughter they dared not come out on patrol work canadian scouts crawled down to them and insulted them ingeniously vilely but could get no answer later they trained their machine guns on german working parties and swept crossroads on which supplies came up and the canadian sniper in one shell hole or another lay for hours in sulky patience and at last got his man they had to pay for all this at maple copse in june of fifteen as i shall tell but it was a vendetta which did not end until the war ended and the canadians fought the germans with a long enduring terrible skilful patience which at last brought them to mons on the day before armistice i saw a good deal of the canadians from first to last and on many days of battle saw the tough hard-fighting spirit of these men their generals believed in common sense applied to war and not in high mysteries and secret rites which cannot be known outside the circle of initiation i was impressed by general curry who i met for the first time in that winter of nineteen fifteen sixteen and wrote at the time that i saw in him 
quotes a leader of men who in open warfare might win great victories by doing the common-sense thing rapidly and decisively to the surprise of an enemy working by elaborate science he would i think astound them by the simplicity of his smashing stroke End of quotes. those words of mine were fulfilled on the day when the canadians helped to break the Drucourt-Cant line and when they captured cambrai with english troops on their right who shared their success general curry who became the canadian corps commander did not spare his men he led them forward whatever the cost but there was something great and terrible in his simplicity and sureness of judgment and this real estate agent as he was before he took to soldiering was undoubtedly a man of strong ability free from those trammels of red tape and tradition which swathed round so many of our own leaders he cut clean to the heart of things ruthlessly like a surgeon and as i watched that man immense in bulk with a heavy thoughtful face and stern eyes that softened a little when he smiled i thought of him as oliver cromwell he was severe as a disciplinarian and not beloved by many men but his staff officers who stood in awe of him knew that he demanded truth and honesty and that his brain moved quickly to sure decisions and saw big problems broadly and with understanding he had good men with him mostly amateurs but with hard business heads and the same hatred of red tape and niggling ways which belonged to their chief so the canadian corps became a powerful engine on our side when it had learned many lessons in blood and tragedy they organized their publicity side in the same masterful way and were determined that what canada did the world should know and damn all censorship they bought up english artists photographers and writing men to record their exploits with lord beaverbrook in england they engineered canadian propaganda with immense energy and canada believed her men made up the british army and did all the fighting i do not blame them and only wished that the english soldier should have been given his share of the honors that belonged to him the lion's share chapter eight the canadians were not the only men to go out raiding it became part of the routine of war that quick killing in the night for english and scottish and irish and welsh troops and had some luck with it and some men liked it and to others it was a horror which they had to do and always it was a fluky nervy job when any accident might lead to tragedy i remember one such raid by the twelfth west yorks in january of fifteen which was typical of many others before raids developed into minor battles with all the guns at work there were four lieutenants who drew up the plan and called for volunteers and it was one of these who went out first and alone to reconnoiter the ground and to find the best way through the german barbed wire he just slipped out over the parapet and disappeared into the darkness when he came back he had a wound in the wrist it was just the bad luck of a chance bullet but brought invaluable knowledge he had found a gap in the enemy's wire which would give an open door to the party of visitors he had also tested the wire further along and thought it could be cut without much bother good enough was the verdict and a detachment started out for no man's land divided into two parties the enemy trenches were about one hundred yards away which seems a mile in the darkness and the loneliness of the dead ground 
At regular intervals the German rockets flared up so that the hedges and wire and parapets along their line were cut out ink-black against the white illumination, and the two patrols of Yorkshiremen who had been crawling forward stopped and crouched lower and felt themselves revealed, and then, when darkness hid them again, went on. The party on the left were now close to the German wire, and under the shelter of a hedge. They felt their way along until the two subalterns who were leading came to a gap which had been reported by the first explorer. They listened intently and heard the German sentry stomping his feet and pacing up and down. Presently he began to whistle softly, utterly unconscious of the men so close to him, so close now that any stumble, any clatter of arms, any word spoken would betray them. The two lieutenants had the revolvers ready and crept forward to the parapet. The men had to act according to instinct now, for no order could be given, and one of them found his instinct led him to clamber right into the German trench a few yards away from the sentry, but on the other side of the traverse. He had not been there long, holding his breath and crouching like a wolf, before footsteps came toward him, and he saw the glint of a cigarette. It was a German officer going his round. The Yorkshire boy sprang on to the parapet again, and lay across it with his head toward our lines and his legs dangling in the German trench. The German officer's cloak brushed his heels, but the boy twisted round a little and stared at him as he passed. But he passed, and presently the sentry began to whistle again, some old German tune which cheered him in his loneliness. He knew nothing of the eyes watching him through the darkness, nor of his nearness to death. It was the first lieutenant who tried to shoot him, but the revolver was muddy and would not fire. Perhaps a click disturbed the sentry. Anyhow, the moment had come for quick work. It was the sergeant who sprang upon him, down from the parapet with one pounce. A frightful shriek, with the shrill agony of a boy's voice, wailed through the silence. The sergeant had his hand upon the German boy's throat, and tried to strangle him and to stop another dreadful cry. The second officer made haste. He thrust his revolver close to the struggling sentry and shot him dead through the neck, just as he was falling limp from a blow on the head given by the butt-end of the weapon which had failed to fire. The bullet did its work, though it passed through the sergeant's hand, which had still held the man by the throat. The alarm had been raised, and German soldiers were running to the rescue. "'Quick!' said one of the officers. There was a wild scramble over the parapet, a drop into the wet ditch and a race for home over no man's land, which was white under the German flares and noisy with the waspish note of bullets. The other party were longer away and had greater trouble to find a way through, but they, too, got home with one officer badly wounded and wonderful luck to escape so lightly. The enemy suffered from the jumps for several nights afterward and threw bombs into their own barbed wire as though the English were out there again and at the sound of those bombs the West Yorks laughed all along their trenches. CHAPTER Nine. It was always astonishing, though afterward familiar in those battlefields of Flanders, to find oneself in the midst of so many nationalities and races and breeds of men belonging to that British family of ours which sent its sons to sacrifice. In those trenches there were always ways of speech, all the sentiment of place and history, all the creeds and local customs and songs of old tradition which belong to the mixture of our blood wherever it is found about the world 
the skirl of the scottish bagpipes was heard through all the years of war over the flemish marshlands and there were highlanders and lowlanders with every dialect over the border in one line of trenches the german soldiers listened to part songs sung in such trained harmony that it was as if the battalion of opera singers had come into the firing line the welshmen spoke their own language for a time no officer received his command unless he spoke it as fluently as running water by aberystwyth and even orders were given in this tongue until a few saxons discovered in the ranks failed to form fours and know their left hand from their right in welsh the french canadians did not need to learn the language of the peasants in these market towns soldiers from somerset used many old saxon words which puzzled their cockney friends and the lancashire men brought the northern burr with them and the grit of the northern spirit and ireland though she would not have conscription sent some of the bravest of her boys out there and in all the bloodiest battles since that day at mons the old fighting qualities of the irish race shone brightly again and the blood of her race has been poured out upon these tragic fields one of the villages behind the lines of arras was so crowded with irish boys at the beginning of sixteen that i found it hard not to believe that a part of old ireland itself had found its way to flanders in one old outhouse the cattle had not been evicted twelve flemish cows lay cuddled up together on the ground in damp straw which gave out a sweet sickly stench while the irish soldiers lived upstairs in the loft to which they climbed up a tall ladder with broken rungs i went up the ladder after them it was very shaky in the middle and putting my head through the loft gave a greeting to a number of dark figures lying in the same kind of straw that i had smelled downstairs one boy was sitting with his back to the beams playing a penny whistle very softly to himself or perhaps to rats under the straw the creatures are that bold said the boy from county clerk that when we first came in they sat up smiling and sang god save ireland bedad it was the truth i'm after telling ye the billets were wet and dirty but it was good to be away from the shells even if the rain came through the beams of a broken roof and soaked through the plaster of wattle walls the irish boys were good at making wood fires in these old barns and pigsties if there were a few bricks about them to make a hearth and sure a baked potato was no protestant with a grudge against the pope there were no such luxuries in the trenches when the dublins and the munsters were up in the firing line at the hohenzollern the shelling was so violent that it was difficult to get up the supplies and some of the boys had to fall back on their iron rations it was the only complaint which one of them made when i asked him what he thought of his first experience under fire it was all right sore and not so bad as i'd been after thinking if only my appetite had not been bigger than my belt at all the spirit of these irishmen was shown by some who had just come out from the old country to join their comrades in the firing line when the germans put over a number of shells smashing the trenches and wounding men the temper of the lads broke out and they wanted to get over the parapet and make a dash for the enemy twould teach them a lesson they told their officers who had some trouble in restraining them these newcomers had to take part in the digging which goes on behind the lines at night out in the open without the shelter of a trench it was nervous work especially when the german flares went up 
silhouetting their figures on the skyline, and when one of the enemy's machine-guns began to chatter. But the Irish boys found the heart for a jest, and one of them, resting on his spade a moment, stared over to the enemy's lines and said, May the old devil take the spalleen who works that typewriter. It was a scaring, nerve-wracking time for those who had come fresh to the trenches, some of those boys who had not guessed the realities of war until then. But they came out proudly, with their tails up, said one of the officers, after their baptism of fire. The drum and fife band of the Munsters was practicing in an old barn on the wayside, and presently, in honor of visitors who were myself and another, the pipers were sent for. They were five tall lads who came striding down the street of Flemish cottages with the windbags under their arms, and then with the fife men sitting on the straw around them, and the drummers standing with their sticks ready, they took their breath for the good old Irish tune demanded by the captain. It was a tune which men could not sing very safely in Irish yesterdays, and it held the passion of many rebellious hearts in the yearning of them. Oh, Paddy dear, and did you hear the news that's going round? The shamrock is forbid by law to grow on Irish ground. She's the most distressful country that ever yet was seen. They're hanging men and women there for wearing of the green. Then the pipers played the march of O'Neill, a wild old air, as shrill and fierce as the spirit of the men who came with their Irish battle-cries against Elizabeth's pikemen and Cromwell's ironsides. I thought then that the lads who still stayed back in Ireland, and the old people there, would have been glad to stand with me outside the Flemish barn and to hear the old tunes of their race played by the boys who were out there fighting. I think they would have wept a little, as I saw tears in the eyes of an Irish soldier by my side, for it was the spirit of Ireland herself, with all her poetry and her valor and her faith in liberty, which came crying from those pipes, and I wished that the sound of them could carry across the sea. That was a year before I saw the Irish battalions come out of Gishi, a good remnant of the strength that had gone in, all tattered and torn, and caked with the filth of battle, and hardly able to stagger along but they pulled themselves up a little and turned their eyes left when they passed their brigadier, who called out words of praise to them. It was more than a year later than that when I saw the last of them, after a battle in Flanders, when they were massacred and lay in heaps around German redoubts up there in the swamps. Chapter 10 Early in the morning of February 23rd there was a clear sky with a glint of sun in it, and airplanes were aloft as though it would be a good flying day. But before midday the sky darkened, and snow began to fall, and then it snowed steadily for hours, so that all the fields of Flanders were white. There was a strange new beauty in the war zone, which had changed all the pictures of war by a white enchantment. The villages where our soldiers were billeted looked as though they were expecting a visit from Santa Claus. The snow lay thick on the thatch and in the soft, downy ridges on the red-tiled roofs. It covered, with its purity, the rubbish heaps of Flemish farmyards, and the old oak beams of barns and sheds where British soldiers made their beds of straw. Away over the lonely country which led to the trenches, every furrow in the fields was a thin white ridge, and the trees, which were just showing a shimmer of green, 
stood ink-black against the drifting snow-clouds with a long white streak down each tall trunk on the side nearest to the wind the old windmills of flanders which looked down upon the battlefields had been touched by the softly falling flakes so that each rib of their sails and each rung of their ladders and each plank of their ancient timbers was outlined like a frosty cobweb along the roads of war our soldiers tramped through the blizzard with ermine mantles over their mackintosh capes and mounted men with their heads bent to the storm were like white knights riding through a white wilderness the long columns of motor lorries the gun limbers drawn up by their batteries the field ambulances by the clearing hospitals were all cloaked in snow and the tramp and traffic of an army were hushed in the great quietude in the trenches the snow fell thickly and made white pillows of piled sandbags and snowmen of sentries standing in the shelter of the traverses the tarpaulin roofs and timbered doorways of dugouts were so changed by the snowflakes that they seemed the dwelling places of fairy folks or at least of pierrot and columbine in a christmas hiding place and not of soldiers stamping their feet and blowing on their fingers and keeping their rifles dry in its first glamour of white the snow gave a beauty even to no man's land making a lacework pattern of barbed wire and lying very softly over the tumbled ground of minefields so that all the ugliness of destruction and death was hidden under this canopy the snowflakes fluttered upon stark bodies there and shrouded them tenderly it was as though all the doves of peace were flying down to fold their wings above the obscene things of war for a little while the snow brought something like peace the guns were quieter for artillery observation was impossible there could be no sniping for the scurrying flakes put a veil between the trenches the airplanes which went up in the morning came down quickly to the powdered fields and took shelter in their sheds a great hush was over the war zone but there was something grim suggestive of tragic drama in the silent countryside so white even in the darkness where millions of men were waiting to kill one another behind the lines the joke of the snow was seen by soldiers who were quick to see a chance of fun men who had been hurling bombs in the ypres salient bombarded one another with hand grenades which burst noiselessly except for the shouts of laughter that signalled a good hit french soldiers were at the same game in one village i passed where the snow fight was fast and furious and some of our officers led an attack upon old comrades with a craft of trappers and an expert knowledge of enfilade fire the white peace did not last long the ermine mantle on the battlefield was stained by scarlet patches as soon as men could see to fight again chapter eleven for some days in that february of nineteen sixteen the war correspondents in the chateau of tilke from which they made their expeditions to the line were snowed up like the army round them not even the motor-cars could move through that snow which drifted across the roads we sat indoors talking high treason sometimes pondering over the problem of a war from which there seemed no way out becoming irritable with one another's company becoming passionate in argument about the ethics of war the purpose of man the gospel of christ the guilt of germany and the dishonesty of british politicians 
futile foolish arguments while men were being killed in great numbers as daily routine without result officers of a division billeted nearby came in to dine with us some of them generals with elaborate theories on war and passionate hatred of germany seeing no other evil in the world some of them brigadiers with tales of appalling brutality which caused great laughter some of them battalion officers with the point of view of those who said morituri te saluant there was one whose conversation i remember having taken notes of it before i turned in at the night it was a remarkable conversation summing up many things of the same kind which i had heard in stray sentences by other officers and month by month years afterward heard again spoken with passion this officer who had come out to france in nineteen fourteen and had been fighting ever since by a luck which had spared his life when so many of his comrades had fallen round him did not speak with passion he spoke with a bitter mocking irony he said that ghq was a close corporation in the hands of a military clique which had muddled through the south african war and were now going to muddle through a worse one they were he said entrenched behind impregnable barricades of old moss-eaten traditions red tape and caste privilege they were of course patriots who believed that the empire depended upon their system they had no doubt of their inherent right to conduct the war which was quote, their war without interference or criticism or publicity they spent many hours of the days and nights in writing letters to one another and those who wrote most letters received most decorations and felt with a patriotic fire within their breasts that they were getting on with the war within their close corporation there were rivalries intrigues perjuries and treacheries like those of a medieval court each general and staff officer had his followers and his sycophants who jostled for one another's jobs fawned on the great man flattered his vanity and made him believe in his omniscience among the general staff there were various grades gso one gso two gso three and those in the lower grades fought for the higher grade with every kind of artfulness and diplomacy and backstair influence they worked late into the night that is to say they went back to their offices after dining at mess quote, so frightfully busy you know old man and kept their lights burning and smoked more cigarettes and rang one another up on the telephone with futile questions and invented new ways of preventing something from being done somewhere the war to them was a far-off thing essential to their way of life as miners in the coal fields are essential to the statesmen in downing street especially in cold weather but it did not touch their souls or their bodies they did not see its agony or imagine it or worry about it they were always cheerful breezy bright with optimism they made a little work go a long way they were haughty and arrogant with subordinate officers or at best affable and condescending and to superior officers they said yes sir no sir quite so sir to any statement however absurd in its ignorance and dogmatism if a major general said wagner was a montebank in music gso three who had once studied in munich said yes sir or you think so sir of course you're right if a lieutenant colonel said browning was not a poet a staff captain who had read browning at cambridge with passionate admiration said 
I quite agree with you, sir. And who do you think was a poet, sir? It was the army system. The opinion of a superior officer was correct, always. It did not admit of contradiction. It was not to be criticized. Its ignorance was wisdom. G.H.Q. lived, said our guest, in a world of its own, rose-colored, remote from the ugly things of war. They had heard of the trenches, yes, but as the West End hears of the East End, a nasty place where common people lived. Occasionally they visited the trenches, as society folk go slumming, and came back proud of having seen a shell burst, having braved the lice and the dirt. The trenches are slums, said our guest. We are the great unwashed. We are the mudlarks. There was a trench in the salient called J-3. It was way out in advance of our lines. It was not connected with our own trench system. It had been left derelict by both sides, and was a ditch in no man's land. But our men were ordered to hold it, to save sniping. A battalion commander protested to the headquarters staff. There was no object in holding J-3. It was a target for German guns and a temptation to German miners. J-3, came the staff command, must be held until further orders. We lost five hundred men in holding it. The trench, and all in it, were thrown up by mines. Among those killed was the Honorable Lyndhurst Bruce, the husband of Camille Clifford, with other husbands of women unknown. Our guest told the story of a massacre in Neuve-Chapelle. This is a death sentence, said the officer, who were ordered to attack, but they attacked and died with great gallantry, as usual. In the slums, said our guest, we are expected to die if G.H.Q. tells us so, or if the Corps arranges our funeral, and generally we do. That night, when the snow lay on the ground, I listened to the rumbling of the gunning away in the salient, and seemed to hear the groans of men at Hooge, at St. Eloi, in other awful places. The irony of that guest of ours was frightful. It was bitter beyond justice, though with truth in the mockery, the truth of a soul shocked by the waste of life and heroism. When I met him later in the war, he was on the staff. Chapter 12 The world, our side of it, held its breath and felt its own heartbeat when, in February of that year 15, the armies of the German Crown Prince launched their offensive against the French at Verdun. It was the biggest offensive since their first drive down to the Marne, and as the days passed they had hurled fresh masses of men against the French and brought up new guns to replace their losses, where there was no doubt that in this battle the Germans were trying by all their weight to smash their way to victory through the walls which the French had built against them by living flesh and spirit. Will they hold? was the question which every man among us asked of his neighbor and of his soul. On our front there was nothing of war beyond the daily routine of the trenches and the daily list of deaths and wounds. Winter had closed down upon us in Flanders, and through its fogs and snows came the news of that conflict round Verdun to the waiting army which was ours. The news was bad, yet not the worst. Poring over maps of the French front, we in our winter quarters saw with secret terror, some of us with a bluster of false optimism, some of us with unjustified despair, that the French were giving ground, giving ground slowly, after heroic resistance, after dreadful massacre, and steadily. They were falling back to the inner line of forts, hard-pressed. 
the germans in spite of monstrous losses under the flail of the soixante-quinze were forcing their way from slope to slope capturing positions which all but dominated the whole of the verdun heights if the french break we shall lose the war said the pessimist the french will never lose verdun said the optimist why not what are your reasons beyond that cursed optimism which has been our ruin why announce things like that as though divinely inspired for god's sake let us stare straight at the facts the germans are losing the war by this attack on verdun they are just pouring their best soldiers into the furnace burning the flower of their army it is our gain it will lead in the end to our victory but my dear good fool what about the french losses don't they get killed too the german artillery is flogging them with shell-fire from seventeen-inch guns twelve-inch nine-inch every bloody and monstrous engine the french are weak in heavy artillery for that error which has haunted them from the beginning they are now paying with their life's blood the life-blood of france you are arguing on emotion and fear haven't you learned yet that the attacking side always loses more than the defense that is a sweeping statement it depends on relative manpower and gunpower given a superiority of guns and men the attack is cheap defense is blown off the earth otherwise how could we ever hope to win i agree but the forces at verdun are about equal and the french have the advantage of position the germans are committing suicide humbug they know what they're doing they are the greatest soldiers in europe led by men with bone heads by great scientists by the traditional rules of medievalism by bald-headed vultures in spectacles with brains like penny in the slot machines put in a penny and outcome rules of war mad egoists colossal blunderers efficient in all things but knowledge of life then god help our british g h q a long silence the silence of men who see monstrous forces at work in which human lives are tossed like straws in flame a silence reaching back to old ghosts of history reaching out to supernatural aid then from one speaker or another a kind of curse and a kind of prayer hell god help us all so it was in our mess where war correspondents and censors sat down together after futile journeys to dirty places to see a bit of shell-fire a few dead bodies a line of german trenches through a periscope a queue of wounded men outside a dressing station the survivors of a trench raid a bombardment before quotes, a minor operation a trench mortar stunt a new part of the line verdun was the only thing that mattered in march and april until france had saved herself and all of us chapter thirteen the british army took no part in that battle of verdun but rendered great service to france at that time by february of nineteen fifteen we had taken over a new line of front extending from our positions around luce southward to the country around lens and arras it was to this movement in february that marshal joffrey made allusion when in a message to our commander-in-chief on march second he said that quotes, the french army remembered that its recent call on the comradeship of the british army met with an immediate and complete response 
by liberating an immense number of French troops of the 10th Army and a mass of artillery from this part of the front, we had the good fortune to be of great service to France at that time, when she needed many men and guns to repel the assault upon Verdun. Some of her finest troops, men who had fought in many battles and had held the trenches with most dogged courage, were here in this sector of the Western Front, and many batteries of heavy and light artillery had been in these positions since the early months of the war. It was, therefore, giving a new and formidable strength to the defense of Verdun when British troops replaced them at the time the enemy made his great attack. The French went away from this part of their battlefront with regret and emotion. To them it was sacred ground, this line along the long ridge of Notre-Dame-de-Lorette past Arras, the old capital of Artois, to Hébertonne, where it linked up with the British army already on the Somme. Every field here was a graveyard to the heroic dead. I went over all the ground which we now held, and saw the visible reminders of all that fighting, which lay strewn there, and told the story of all the struggle there, by the upheaval of earth, the wreckage of old trenches, the mine-craters and shell-holes, and the litter of battle in every part of that countryside. I went there first, to the hill of the Notre-Dame-de-Lorette, looking northward to Lens, and facing the Vimy Ridge, which the enemy held as a strong barrier against us above the village of Souchet and Ablan de Nazaire and Nouvelle Saint-Vassate, which the French had captured when they were still there, and I am glad of that, for I saw in their places the men who had lived there and fought there, as one may read in the terrible and tragic narrative of war by Henri Barbus in Le Feu. I went on such a day as Barbus describes. Never once did he admit any fine weather to alleviate the suffering of his comrades, thereby exaggerating their misery somewhat. It was raining, and there was a white, dank mist through the trees of the Bois de Bouvigny on the way to the spur of Notre-Dame. It clung to the undergrowth, which was torn by shell-fire, and to every blade of grass growing rankly round the lips of shell-craters, in which were bits of red rag or old bones the red pantaloons of the first French armies who had fought through those woods in the beginning of the war. I roamed about the graveyard there, where shells had smashed down some of the crosses, but had not damaged the memorial to men who had stormed up the slope of Notre-Dame-de-Lorette and had fallen when their comrades chased the Germans to the village below. A few shells came over the hill as I pushed through the undergrowth with the French captain, and they burst among the trees with shattering boughs, I remember that little officer in a steel helmet, and I could see a Norman knight as his ancestor, with a falcon as his crest. He stood so often on the skyline, in full view of the enemy. I was thankful for the mist, and I admired but deplored his audacity. Without any screen to hide us, we walked down the hillside, gathering clots of greasy mud in our boots, stumbling and one sprawling. Another French captain joined us and became the guide. This road is often marmite, he said, but I have escaped so often I have a kind of fatalism. I envied his faith, remembering two eight-inch shells, which a few minutes before had burst in our immediate neighborhood, cutting off twigs of trees, and one branch with a scatter of steel as sharp as knives and as heavy as sledgehammers. Then, for the first time, I went into Ablan saint nazaire which afterward I passed through scores of times on the way to Vimy when that ridge was ours. 
the ragged ruin of its church was white and ghostly in the mist on the right of the winding road which led through it was Suchet wood all blasted and riven and beyond the huddle of bricks which once was Suchet village our men have fallen on every yard of this ground said the french officer their bodies lie thick below the soil poor france poor france he spoke with tragedy in his eyes and voice seeing the vision of all that youth of france which even then in march of sixteen had been offered up in vast sacrifice to the greedy devils of war rain was slashing down now beating a tattoo on the steel helmets of a body of french soldiers who stood shivering by the ruined walls while trench motors were making a tumult in the neighborhood they were the men of henri barbus his comrades there were middle-aged men and boys mixed together in a confraternity of misery they were plastered with wet clay and their boots were enlarged grotesquely by the clots of mud on them their blue coats were sodden and the water dripped out of them and made pools round their feet they were unshaven and their wet faces were smeared with the soil of the trenches how goes it said the french captain with me it does not go said the french sergeant nom de Dieu. my men are not gay to-day they have been wet for three weeks and their bones are aching this place is not a bal if we light even a little fire we ask for trouble at the sight of smoke the dirty bush starts shelling again so we do not get dry and we have no warmth and we cannot make even a cup of good hot coffee that dirty bosch up there on Rimi looks out of his deep tunnels and laughs up his sleeve and says those poor devils of frenchmen are not gay to-day that is true mon capitaine mais que voulez-vous c'est pour la france oui c'est pour la france the french captain turned away and i could see that he pitied those comrades of his as he went over cratered earth to the village of nouvelle saint vast poor fellows he said presently not even a cup of hot coffee that is war blood and misery glory yes afterward but at what a price so we came to nouvelle saint vast a large village once with a fine church old in history a schoolhouse a town hall many little streets of comfortable houses under the shelter of the friendly old hill of vimy and within easy walk of arras then a frightful rubbish heap mingled with unexploded shells the twisted iron of babies perambulators bits of dead bodies and shattered farm carts two french soldiers carried a stretcher on which a heavy burden lay under a blood-soaked blanket it is a bad wound asked the captain the men laid the stretcher down breathing hard and uncovered a face waxen the color of death it was the face of a handsome man with a pointed beard breathing snuffily through his nose he may live as far as the dressing station said one of the frenchmen it was a trench mortar which blew a hole in his body just now over there the man jerked his head toward a barricade of sandbags at the end of a street of ruin two other men walked slowly toward us with a queer hobbling gait both of them were wounded in the legs and had tied rags round their wounds tightly they looked grave almost sullen staring at us as they passed with brooding eyes the german trench mortars are very evil said the captain we poked about the ruins raising our heads cautiously above sandbags to look at the german lines cut into the lower slopes of vimy 
and thrust out by communication trenches to the edge of the village in which we walked. A boy officer came out of a hole and saluted the captain, who stepped back and said in an emotional way, Tiens, c'est toi, Edward? Oui, mon capitaine. The boy had a fine, delicate Latin face, with dark eyes and long black eyelashes. You are a lieutenant, then. How does it go, Edward? It does not go, answered the boy, like that French sergeant in Ablan saint nazaire This is a bad place. I lose my men every day. There are three killed yesterday and six wounded. Today already there are two killed and ten wounded. Something broke in his voice. Ce n'est pas bon du tout, du tout. It is not good at all, at all. The captain clapped him on the shoulders, tried to cheer him. Courage, mon vieux. The rain shot down on us. Our feet slithered in deep, greasy mud. Sharp stabs of flame vomited out of the slopes of Vimy. There was the high, long-drawn scream of shells in flight to Notre-Dame-de-Lorette. Batteries of soixante-quinze were firing rapidly, and their shells cut through the air above us like scythes. The cauldron in this pit of war was being stirred up. Another wounded Poyou was carried past us, covered by a bloody blanket like the other one. From slimy sandbags and wet ruins came the sickening stench of human corruption. A boot with some pulp inside protruded from a mud bank where I stood, and there was a human head without eyes or nose, black and rotting in the puddle of a shell hole. Those were relics of a battle on May ninth, a year before, when swarms of boys of the sixteen class, boys of eighteen, the flower of French youth, rushed forward from the crossroads at Les Targettes, a few hundred yards away, to capture these ruins of Nouvelle saint vaste They captured them, and it cost them seven thousand in killed and wounded, at least three thousand dead. They fought like young demons through the flaming streets. They fell in heaps under the German barrage fire. Machine guns cut them down as though they were ripe corn under the sickle. But these French boys broke the Prussian guard that day. Round bout over all this ground below Notre-Dame-de-Lorette and the fields around Suchet, the French had fought ferociously, burrowing below earth at the labyrinth, sapping, mining, gaining a network of trenches, an isolated house, a huddle of ruins, a German saphead, by frequent rushes and the frenzy of those who fight with their teeth and hands flinging themselves on the bodies of their enemies, below ground in the darkness or above ground between ditches and sandbags. So for something like fifteen months they fought, by Suchet and the labyrinth, until in February of sixteen they went away after greeting our khaki men who came into their old places and found the bones and bodies of Frenchmen there, as I found, white, rat-gnawed bones, in disused trenches below Notre-Dame, when the rain washed the earth down and uncovered them. End of section 11